You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political risk consulting firm. Joining me on the show today is Marco Popich. Uh, Marco is a partner at the Clock Tower Group. Uh, he leads their strategy team. He provides bespoke research to clients and partners on geopolitics, macroeconomics, and markets. Before that, he founded BCA Research's geopolitical strategy practice, and I know him back from our Stratford days. I was just a young whippersnapper intern, and Marco was running around and doing legendary stuff at Stratford. He was one of the best, and we've managed to keep in touch over the years, and he was nice enough to come on. Uh, one of the reasons we had him on is because he just published a new book called Geopolitical Alpha. Um, I just finished it myself this past week while preparing for this podcast, um, and I got to say it's it's a wonderful read. Uh, Marco has done that really difficult thing of taking really important information and writing it not just well, but engagingly. It's funny. It's witty. Um, it's cho- Every single page is chock full of insights. It almost feels like you're having a beer with Marco at a bar, which, you know, when we're all stuck inside with COVID-19, the more you can get that feeling, the better. So, Marco, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, listeners, some of you have been leaving us reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts and all the other places you're listening. Thank you so much. If you haven't done that already, please consider doing that. It helps us a ton. Uh, if you want to learn more about our firm, Perch Perspectives, if you want to sign up for the free newsletter, if you want to talk to us about how we can help you manage political risk, um, you can check us out at perchperspectives.com or you can write to us at info at perchperspectives.com. Uh, we read everything and we respond to everything, so don't be shy. Also, I should say, just for posterity's sake, uh, Marco and I recorded this conversation on Wednesday, November 18th. It should come out about a week and a half after this. Uh, I don't think there's anything particularly time-sensitive in there. One last housekeeping note. Uh, we noticed after the fact that Marco had a little bit of digital distortion on his microphone. Uh, Jacob and Denure, who are the awesome guys at Audiographies who helped me produce and edit the podcast, have done the best they can to get that distortion out of there. But you might notice a little bit of clicking or a little bit of distortion here and there. Um, we didn't want to re-record the podcast because this is such a good episode and we don't think it distracts from the overall flow. But if you hear a little bit of weird sounds, uh, don't worry, they won't be there in the future. And like I said, I don't think they affect the overall conversation, which was really great. So thanks, Jacob, Denure, Marco, everyone else. Uh, and let's get to it. And I'll, I'll record an, uh, a highly complimentary intro to you later on. I don't want you to hear that bit because then you're going to get a big head about yourself. And <laughs> can't have that on the podcast. No, so. we can't. No, but listen, so I want to start off, Marco. First of all, thank you for being here. I want to tell you that I admire the book that you just wrote, Geopolitical Alpha, in a huge way because you've taken something that we both love, um, geopolitics, and you've made it actually actionable and tangible and concrete in a real and interesting way. Um, I also have to tell you that I hate you a little bit um, because you, you, you spend a lot of time throughout the book talking about how you're just bathing in nihilist indifference. Um, and for better or for worse, I, that's not, that's not my process. I can't do that. I guess I'm more like a Woody Allen character. I have to wallow in self-pity <laughs> and, you know, th- think to myself at how awful the world is. And then I scribble that all out on paper before I go out in public. And then when I'm in public, I don't have to say the things that I actually think, but I'm, I'm jealous of how you've been able to, <laughs> to reach the, the enlightened plane of not caring about such things. Well, first of all, thank you, Jacob. It's, it's great to, uh, reconnect with you and, uh, to do this. Uh, to do this podcast with you. Uh, so thank you for the invitation. Um, and yeah, I think uh, bathing in nihilism is a very important part of the process. And it's interesting how many people picked up on that statement in the book. 
So I get asked about it quite a bit. Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, it goes back to really just uh, my childhood and growing up in a country that I thought was awesome, Yugoslavia, like in every way. We had everything you needed. Um, and uh, great basketball team, right, which is very important to my process. <laughs> and uh, was very, very happy with the country that I was born in. And then, boom, suddenly uh, it disappears and you watch it, you know, descend down the steps of, uh, of collapse. So you see the civilization around you kind of crumble. Uh, and at one point, you know, I was uh, watching on CNN Live um, footage of, uh, you know, my hometown Belgrade getting bombed. And I literally can point to that uh, evening. Uh, I was, I was in, in Switzerland. I was in Bern. Uh, you know, I was 18 years old. Uh, watching this footage um, really kind of like broke something in my head, like code, just like, you know, there was a glitch. And from that point onwards, I just really don't care. Um, I have the ability to enter a state of mind where I don't care. I don't want to say I don't care about the world like at all as a human being, but there's like a switch I now have where I can go from being a human Marco Popic and you, you know, turn on the switch and you become a, an analyst Marco Popic. Yeah, no, I, we, we all, all of us who do this sort of thing have to have to go through our own process to, to get to that place. Um, and some people like you can bathe in, in indifference. And some people like me, you know, we, we sit in our room and we write journals that we never publish to the world. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it works for you. And honestly, your way seems more fun. I wish I had the, the, <laughs> the Cylon switch. It would be easier for me in my life. I mean, uh, but, you know, I, but, but you know what, just uh, to pick up on that, um, yeah. you know, I'm not sure I agree. You know, I'm not sure I agree that a lot of people have the switch or I'm not sure that people uh, care about this or are, mm -hmm. you know, a Woody Allen character, you know, that is wrecked by uh, uncertainty. So uh, I think actually quite a lot of people who do both the job of geopolitical forecasting and who invest uh, don't actually spend enough time ruminating on these things. Uh, so my, my message was not to become a nihilist. You know, my message was, um, and there's a passage in the book where I say like, you know, uh, to become a geopolitical forecaster, it sure helps to see your country descend into an orgy of violence. <laughs> but it's not a requirement. You know, it's not a requirement and you're doing it your own way. You're mindful about it. My message is meditate on your biases and you're doing it in your own way. Uh, but I disagree with you that um, a lot of people do this. And I think that's why there is alpha to be generated in the markets by doing correct geopolitical analysis uh, that yeah. is steeped in, 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 in you know, these thinking, in these thoughts. Yeah, no, and I, I, I also do, I think there is something to, to losing your homeland um, that, that goes to this because a, the experience of every Jew in the world is to have lost your homeland like 2,000 years ago, whether that's true or not, whatever, but like that's what they indoctrinate with you with, when you're in synagogue and when you're at you know, Sunday school and all that other stuff. And I think there is something very real about not feeling at home in any one place that allows you to get into that mindset of being able to let go and say, okay, like all the stuff that is around me, yes, it matters. And I'm not going to be a sociopath in my personal life. I'm going to be a family man and I'm going to have children and I'm right. going to, you know, watch the Lakers. But, you know, when, when, when the switch gets flipped on, I go out there and I tell folks like, look, when things are tough, like you've got to be able to turn the switch on and you've got to be able to look at the world from this pragmatic basis. I think that uh, analogy, I think, um, is a really good one. I, I think you're right. And, and you know what? I've always said, like in, in, in history, for example, some of the best historians are Marxists. 
-hmm. You know, why? Because they're bitter because they lost. <laughs> and so, you know, like Eric Hobsbawm, like my favorite historian, I mean, there's like the bitterness is just dripping from the page because you feel his angst, you know, and he is just distraught with the failure of Marxism as an ideology, as a, as a policy tool. And because of that, his books, they're able to really get to the bottom of kind of what truly happened. They're objective because he is approaching it from a sense of loss, failure, and defeat. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's get into the bookmark because I'm sure we could talk about, you know, philosophy of history and stuff like that for hours. But um, most of this podcast, I view my role as I'm just going to be throwing alley-oops up to you and I want you to just dunk all over my listeners, you know, just 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 step over them, like do whatever you got to do sort of thing. And I'll, I'll challenge you a little bit at the end. But um, I just want to start off at, at the most basic level. Um, what's the one thing you want people to take away to, to take away from reading the book? If there's if there's one sentence or one idea that you could have branded on their minds, because there's there's a lot of stuff in here, and I'm going to pick your brain about a lot of it. But what what's the one thing that sort of made you sit down and decide, you know what, I have something to say, I need to get this book out? Um, that you know everybody can do decent political analysis that is investment relevant. That's what I would want everyone to take. It's it. There is a way to approach political and geopolitical forecasting without you having to have a PhD or having you know extensively read about these things. There's a way to approach the way you think about politics that's systematic and in some way based on empirical data, um, and therefore you know repeatable, reasonable, and uh, relatively investment relevant. Well, I, I think that's an important one because it's a it's a process and framework oriented question. But let's dive into it a little bit deeper and say, I mean, you you bring up a bunch of insights in the in the course of the book. W what is the one most important insight that your process that you've laid out here? What's the one that you think is most important for the decade ahead? Like the investor who is going into this, um, you know, let's say he sets up the process, he drinks your Kool Aid, everything like that. What's the one insight? that you've gone through that you think is the most important thing that's going to define what's coming ahead in the, in the 2020s? Okay. Well, uh, I mean, right away, I think it's that, <clears throat> you know, we're moving away in the West in the developed world away from the Washington consensus. And uh, we're basically moving towards something else. Now I, I named that something else, Buenos Aires consensus. Um, why? Because I want to kind of punch the reader in the face. Uh, I want to punch the investor in the face. Everybody knows Argentina. Everybody knows the the tragedy of Argentina, the underperformance of Argentina. And so I want to make them think that Marco Papic thinks we're all going to become like Argentina. You know, <laughs> uh, I excite the gold bugs. I get him on my side. Um, and uh, But I don't actually mean that. I mean, it's, it's not that the U.S. is going to become like Argentina. It's just that the number of policies that investors have taken for granted, that they thought they, they were just law, uh, like a Newtonian physical law preordained that capitalism would approach asymptotically some laissez-faire ideal. Um, this, this is a collection of policies such as deregulation, ever lower corporate tax rates, central bank independence, prudent counter-cyclical fiscal policy, free trade, and, and so on. So these policies that really have dominated since 1985, since the Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan revolutions, uh, these policies, we've given them a name, and that name is the Washington Consensus. Uh, why? Because, you know, they're 
international organizations, the IMF and World Bank, that propagated this set of best practices uh, were based in Washington, D.C. And this consensus has worked really well for uh, basically 40 years. But what I think is most important is not whether it's been successful or not, but it became uh, sort of uh, like the background hum of capitalism. And so investors were able to ignore a lot of things. Who wins the election? In most developed markets, it just didn't matter anymore because center-left, left-leaning parties, the social democratic kind of world, abandoned the more demand-driven policies um, of dirigism in basically late 80s, 90s, and in some countries, early 2000s. The point is that for like a good 30 years, you just didn't care about domestic politics. And I think that obviously this world is now moving towards something else. That something else is basically everything I just said. It's the opposite. So from an independent central banking to less independent, from a counter-cyclical fiscal policy to to much more pro-cyclical fiscal policy, to more regulation, to no more cuts in corporate tax rate, and so on and so on. And what's interesting, I'm not the first one to say this, obviously, Jacob. So like it's, you know, this isn't that profound what I'm saying. What is interesting to me and where I am the first person to say this, and I've been saying it since 2015, the U.S. is going to be at the forefront of the shift. It's going to lead. It's going to define this Buenos Aires consensus. America is abandoning the very laissez-faire capitalist you know, setting that it set in the 80s, that it gave to the world. And that's really interesting, and I think it has a lot of profound implications for global investors who are looking to do asset allocation over the next you know, decade, starting with, of course, uh, what it's going to do to the dollar. I think we're going to enter a, a dollar bear market over the course of the next decade. And then you know, once you know where the dollar is going, you can basically fill out the rest. Well, you're making me feel good about myself because I, I thought the center of gravity of the whole book was the Buenos Aires Conference. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that I hit that on the nose. And I, I thought I, I just, you know, having talked to investors myself and advised both companies and investors on these sorts of things myself, I feel like that that gut punch about, look, the dollar already hit its peak in 2020. Like we're in a completely new paradigm right now. You need to be underweight U.S. assets. It's the death knell for U.S. equity performance. I mean, those are some of the insights that get generated by what you just said. And I feel like that's going to be the thing that opens most people's most people's eyes because th- there are so many folks. I was just at dinner last night with some folks that I was trying to pitch on a contract and they were you know, just saying, well, the U.S. is going to be you know, strong and powerful and it's going to be calling all the shots. And once this COVID stuff gets done, we're going to go back to the way things were. And these were smart people. These weren't dumb people. These are smart, very successful people. And they've convinced themselves that you know, the last year or two is an aberration. Um, and I think one of the things you do really well in the book is, is you, you diagnose why it isn't and what the next step forward is. And I thought one of the most interesting parts of it was the way you talked about the median voter theorem and how that kind of added uh, a lens and is part of the, the way that you built that insight um, starting in 2015. So just g- give the listeners a little taste of what the median voter theorem is and how it helped you make that call on the Buenos Aires uh, consensus. So yeah, the whole book is basically about, um, the whole book is essentially about constraints, right? And um it's, it's um, it, you know, it's this uh, kind of a philosophical, intellectual, um, you know, foundation of thinking about geopolitical forecasting that both of you, you and I, uh, Jacob, come from. Uh, we worked at Stratfor, where obviously policymakers are seen 
to be kind of trapped by the geography of the country that they're based in. Um, and I always felt that that didn't go far enough. So, um, you know, you can't predict asset price moves based on, you know, geography. It's just that that's borderline insane. So what you need to do is you need to expand your toolbox. And so aside from geopolitics, you have to add other things. You know, some are pretty obvious, um, like macroeconomics, finance, uh, and some are really kind of pedantic, pedantic and annoying, like domestic politics. And in democracy, the main domestic political constraint is not your legislative majority or interest group politics. It's actually the median voter. And so this is where the median voter theory comes from. I, I didn't invent it. I, I, I took it from political sciences, as many things in the book um, are basically lifted from academia. And median voter theory is so interesting because it, it fell out of favor in political science literature for many reasons. Mainly, it couldn't really uh, correctly forecast uh, some shifts. Um, but I always felt that you couldn't use the median voter theory as a predictive tool in a sense that you will always know that it works. And let me explain what I mean. It's a very simple idea. Median voter uh, is obviously uh, a nonsensical, like it doesn't exist. The median voter is a theoretical concept. The median voter, uh, their preferences are the part under the curve of all vo voters where most voters basically uh, coalesce. That is the policy preference of most voters in this country. And you can have a median voter on different policy issues. You can have one on gun rights, on abortion, or trade, and on economic policy setting. So getting a sense of where the median voter is important because policymakers are going to approximate their, um, their policies based on the median voter's preferences. And so the median voter themselves becomes a constraint to policy action. In other words, if you're Alexis Tsipras in 2015, you want to exit the euro, but the median voter in Greece does not want to exit the euro, that you are constrained massively. You can go against the median voter temporarily or in a short period of time, but there will be a violent reaction against that. Um, and so the median voter is the anchor of policies in a particular country that you always as an investor have to think about. So in you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, um, there was this concern that Europe, I mean, actually, there was a concern about Europe since 2010, that, you know, Europe was going to descend into uh, some sort of an orgy of populism and that everybody was going to go uh, towards Eurosceptic parties and so on and so on. And the data just wasn't supporting this, Jacob. I mean, like the survey data, the um, it was clearly showing that the support for the euro area was very high. And so I, I started thinking, like, why do Europeans want to continue to... Um, uh, to want to continue with the European Monetary Union and the and the currency project, and the point was that they just weren't that angry. You know, like the Great Financial Crisis was a huge shock, but like, eh, you know, their social welfare net in Europe is extremely complex, extremely robust, and it basically ensured that nobody got really pissed off. People were miffed, but they weren't pissed off, and so the anti-establishment parties in Europe consistently underperformed expectations of people like us. Not me, because I had a very high conviction view Europe would like stay together, but a lot of people writing, especially in the UK press, a lot of these political analysts writing op-eds were like, oh, Europe is going to fall apart. And it just kept not falling apart. So when you unpacked why it wasn't falling apart, you came to a realization that Europe has a history of populism. 
extremely violent left-wing and right-wing populism. And so the experiences of the 1920s and 30s were like a pandemic of a vile disease that inoculated the continent against complacency. And so what many Anglo-Saxon investors and thinkers look at socialism is actually this immune response system to the absolute horror of the Second World War. Europe built up its social welfare state not because Europeans are lazy, but because the experiences in the 20s and 30s are so jarring to the continent. And that social welfare state basically did its job over the last decade and ensured that, for the most part, populists did not win in most of these countries. And even when they did, they turned out to be faux populists, you know, like in Italy, for example. Five Star Movement is now pro-EU, pro-Euro. So is Marine Le Pen, for God's sakes, right? Everybody's like pro-Euro. In the US and the UK, however, these two countries escaped the, the horrors of populism in the 20s and 30s, they weren't inoculated and they were more likely to deconstruct the social welfare state throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so they were actually the most exposed to the shift in median voter preferences. The median voter moved from the center or center-right to the left. Now, how can I empirically like prove this? You know, uh, Well, United States of America is the only country in the developed world that had a pro-cyclical fiscal policy over the last three years. It elected what most people will call a center-right uh, president on economic policy, but I would argue that he's been actually quite left-leaning. Other than the corporate tax cuts that he sort of you know, passed as a nod to the GOP establishment, his policies have been extremely, I think, on the left side of the spectrum. Budget deficit was completely blown out, even though unemployment was low, late-stage economic cycle, the U.S. basically spent like a drunken sailor. And I don't think that is a function of Donald Trump. I think that's the function of the demands of the median voter that in the United States um, is basically demanding these policies. And we're going to see more of them over the next decade. Yeah. So I, I want you to let's bookmark the Europe conversation because that's one of the things on my list I want to hit. And I even use like for me, I use the EU as a litmus test for whether I take an analyst or a writer seriously. If they keep on dredging up that boring old, the EU thing is going to collapse. I pretty much just turn off right there because it's basically like modern day geopolitical Seventh Day Adventism. It's just like, oh, well, it didn't fall apart this time. Oh, it's going to happen next year. Oh, no, it's going to happen next year. Like, trust us, this stuff is going to completely fall apart. Like, it's just nonsense. But but before we get there, um, just on, on the US point, because um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was you were pretty strong in the book that you felt like there was going to be another round of stimulus. Mm. Um, and there hasn't been another round of stimulus because the Republicans in the Senate don't want to do it. It almost seems like they're trying to hold back the dam. So do you think that that median voter theorem, it's it's pointing towards that left direction? And this is just kind of, a, I don't know, like a momentary blip and that it's going to get bust through eventually once we get through, um, you know, the actual transfer of power? Or is there anything meaningful you think in the fact that 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 second tranche of stimulus has actually been held up for either domestic political reasons or some, I'm sure some of these guys believe in the things that they're saying too. But how does that work into the framework that you just laid out for us? So I think the way to think about that question is, um, you know, think of the median voter theorem and the Buenos Aires consensus as an anchor and or think about it as a potential GDP growth target. You know, you might say, well, this economy has a potential GDP growth rate of like 2%. But it doesn't mean it's going to be 2% every year. In fact, 
growth is going to uh, outperform the potential or underperform the potential with obviously subsequent, you know, um, impacts on inflation, uh, on performance of, you know, markets and so on. So to me, um, you can have deviations from the median voter. Uh, as an investor, if you get the median voter right, though, you will, you will know whether those deviations uh, are persistent or not. So here's, here's what a true deviation, here, here's what would prove me wrong. If we have a 2010 multi-year austerity push in the United States going forward, then clearly the Buenos Aires consensus is, is you know, is falsified. It's, it's wrong. I highly doubt that will happen. In fact, um, you know, Republicans in the Senate are not talking about austerity at all. They're not actually talking about like lowering the budget deficits. They're just saying we don't need $3 trillion worth of stimulus. Mm-hmm. The offer on the table is somewhere between 500 and a trillion, 500 billion and a trillion. After we have already spent over $3 trillion on stimulating the economy. And so I think that that's, that's the way to think about the current hiccup um, in terms of the policy. But look, 2022 midterms are coming up. There are about seven or eight um, moderate centrist Republicans up for re-election in 2022 in quite purplish uh, states. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to bet that, you know, Toomey, uh, Murkowski, Portman, Grassley, these senators are going to struggle to stand in the way of the median voter. And I will bet that maybe not initially, but by the end of 2021, they will succumb to those pressures and we will have consistent fiscal support. That fiscal support will not be as, a, uh, as robust as it would have been under a sort of democratic control of the Senate. But I think there's sufficient centrists in the Senate and the Republican Party who will, who will be afraid to run in the 2022 midterms against a democratic president who accuses them of a double depreciation. Now, there's also kind of a technical functional point here. Uh, it's much more easier for you to, you know, argue for an ideological kind of z- zealot position out of the House than out of the Senate. Uh, House representatives, they represent districts. Most American districts have been gerrymandered into sort of these purely ideological, you know, um, um, very safe districts. So I think it was much easier, functionally speaking, for uh, representatives in the 2010-2016 for the Tea Party to do this out of the House, then it will be for Republicans to do the same thing out of a Senate. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess that means it may not be a true test of the median theory, um, but I think combination of this technical uh, aspect and just the fact that the median voter doesn't want austerity, I think will combine to have a relatively robust fiscal policy out of the U.S. And ultimately, you know, our job is as sort of investment strategist is to always think in comparative terms. So even if you don't get the kind of fiscal policy out of the U.S. that you would have under a blue wave scenario, uh, I would still bet that you will get the most profligate outcome out of any developed market other than maybe Japan. Hmm. Uh, I think the most important, all of that I thought was interesting and dead on, but the most important sentence that you just said there that I wanted to call attention to to folks is you said, here's what it looks like if, if, if I'm wrong. Um, and I think one, one of the things that I have a hard time sometimes when I'm pitching new clients is there are a lot of these wizards out here who are promising 
you know, crystal balls and, and big theories and things like that. And the, one of the real differences, I think, between, and you go through this in the book, it's you have to have falsifiable theories. You're not going to be right 100% of the time. And if you have the confidence to sort of say, hey, like, here are, are, here are the scenarios and here are the ones where it's wrong. Now you're actually talking to somebody who can help you, I think. Whereas there are people out there who, you know, they think they can just beam it out of the sky onto the page because of where rivers are located. Well, I think, you know, Nate Silver, Philip Tetlock, there's been a lot of like research on this and uh, like academic research with, you know, people in labs, basically. And assigning uh, probabilities is just a really important thing. Um, now, you know, obviously Nate Silver gets a lot of, you know, flack for uh, his predictions, whether he was wrong in 2016, whether he was overly bullish on Biden this time around, but he is on record with a probability. And he defends that probability with empirical data. And then he changes that probability if the empirical, you know, kind of data changes. And I think that um, the reason it's not stupid to cite probabilities in mathematical terms is that it forces you to think about conviction, think about what was changed that probability up and down, and to also um, provide, you know, someone who you're talking to and, and sort of sparring with with the notion that you do accept <clears throat> that there's, you know, 80, 70, 60, 50% probability that something else happens. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Um, all right, let's let's go around the world a little bit. Um, I want to start with Europe because you've already alluded to it a little bit. One of the sentences I wrote down from the book was, there are no risks to European integration over the course of the next decade. Full stop. <laughs> It's great. Now, I want you to tell our Polish listeners and our Hungarian listeners why you think their governments are full of shit. <laughs> well, actually, uh, that's a very, very simple. I mean, look, you know, to, uh, to each their own, if you will, everybody plays this dance. Everybody has a way to extract uh, more benefits, you know, and, and whining is a very, very productive way to do that. <laughs> um, so here, here's, here's how confident I am in this. At some point in future, the European Union will die. All things die, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the German, uh, the, what is it called? The Holy Roman Empire, right, collapsed. Um, and before it collapsed, it became irrelevant. So I'm sure that the future of European Union on a sort of a uh, decade-long, century-long timeline, uh, eventually that paradigm, you know, dissipates. But I'll tell you what country will lower the EU flag last it will be hungry. <laughs> when the EU falls apart, the EU flag will be lowered last in Budapest. There is no country in the EU that empirically and quantitatively benefits from the EU more than Hungary. None. And so, you know, like, I, I don't think that Budapest, um, you know, that the government is, is necessarily from a game theoretical perspective doing anything wrong. I think from a game theoretical perspective, they're pushing the limits of, of what they can do. And, you know, God bless them. All is fair in love and war. But the moment somebody shows up in Berlin or Brussels with some testicular fortitude, I think the, the, the jig is up, you know. Mm -hmm. And I would really watch the CDU leadership race in Germany, which is going to be held the, the following um, year. In 2021, it was supposed to be uh, already handled this year. Uh, and there's, you know, this fellow Friedrich Mertz, who is not the front runner, but he's uh, basically second. He could very well win. He tried to 
run for CDO leadership uh, last time they had it. This is a very interesting person who has this interesting mix of policies that I'm starting to see more and more in Europe. He's conservative, socially and culturally. He's quite anti-immigrant, but he is ardently pro-integration. And this is somebody that if, if somebody of those qualities came to power in Germany or Western Europe, I mean, they're going to turn around to the East and just say like, look, you guys are in or out. Okay. Like that's it. I, we're not going to be diplomatic about this. The nineties are gone. The two thousands are gone. The 2010s are gone. We're not going to go and integrate further. And if you guys are hesitating, you know, there's the door. Now, of course, you know, Hungary and Budapest will say, uh, Hungary and Poland can say, well, look, you, you can't do that. We have a veto, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I mean, there's already rumors in Western Europe of this plan to basically create the Confederation of Europe. Call it something else. Basically, you, you control A, every treaty. You control C, control V, right? So you copy paste <laughs> every single word of the treaties. You slap a different name on it, sign him. And then, you know, Hungary and Poland can stay in the EU. You just nobody will care because everything will have moved on to something else. And this is something that people are already talking about. Serious people are talking about this. Like, look, we can go, we can find a way to kick you guys out. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the dance that is being played between Central Europe and Western Europe is interesting. Um, I think the Central European countries are, uh, are playing game theory very well. But eventually, I think uh, there will be a moment where they can't do that anymore. If the EU collapsed, uh, their borrowing rates would go through the roof. Their ability to service debt would go through the roof. Their ability to be integrated in supply chains, which employ their you know, people who vote for populist parties, would, would basically collapse. Uh, and they don't have an alternative. They are landlocked in the middle of Europe. They are either you know, integrated into European um, supply chains or, quite frankly, they're speaking Russian. Do you think that by the end, I mean, it sounds to me like you're pretty confident that there's going to be an EU 27 by the end of the decade. Do you think the EU gets any bigger in the course of the next decade? Do you see anybody else joining the party? Um, you know, I don't really know. Um, maybe. Maybe my, you know, rump homeland <laughs> makes it in on the last train. Um, I think that, um, I'm not sure, by the way, it's going to be EU 27 by the end of the decade. I mean, you know, there, there could be some exit. I, I don't mm. think so. I think... The countries that that yap the most about Euroscepticism are actually the ones that need Europe the least. So it's just yapping. The one country that would so so how do I falsify my thesis? Mm -hmm. You know, this is the key question. Italy doesn't scare me at all. We can talk about it at length. Um, you know, Spain doesn't scare me at all. Obviously, Central Eastern Europe, it's 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 a joke to think any of these countries leaving. <laughs> Uh, the one country, and, and Germany's uh, constrained macroeconomically and, and so on and so on, the one country that should always be on top of the, the kind of risks is France. France has an economy that's extremely consumer-driven. They're not really an export-oriented economy. Um, France has you know, a history of, of, of mattering. Uh, its economy is not as dilapidated as sort of the median investor thinks. Uh, they're actually really good at things that I think will perform well over the next decade. They're good in energy space. They're good in industrials. Uh, they're good in autos. They're good in manufacturing. They're good in these sort of sectors that I think will lead. Yes, they suck at tech, but guess what? Tech is at like decade-long highs in terms of valuation, so it's okay. <laughs> They've already been hit by that. So France 
France, if France ever got truly Euroskeptic and became truly, um, you know, like moved towards that paradigm, that's when I think you should start worrying. Now, that hasn't happened. And in fact, if you look at Marine Le Pen and what she has done since her defeat, you know, uh, a lot of the populists in France are basically saying like, look, we lost that election because of the euro, because we didn't listen to the median voter. We're just going to table that for now. And so she has capitulated on some of these things. So the populists in France are capitulating on European integration. Uh, but that may not always be the case for whatever reason going forward. And that's just something to keep in mind. Like the real risk in Europe is not Poland and Hungary. Uh, it, it's definitely one of the big countries. And, and I would I would watch and monitor France. Yeah, we've gone from the German question to the French question. All right. Well, I, I think you sufficiently dropped the mic there. Let's let's move on a little bit uh, further east. Um I, I loved your section on India. India drives me nuts. Uh, you know, on Monday morning I wake up and I think it's going to take over the world. On Tuesday morning I'm convinced the whole thing is going to f- fall apart. On Wednesday morning, you know, I, I just like ping pong back and forth all over the place, and it was really refreshing to sort of hear you lay out a really strong argument for why you think India is probably going to underperform over the course of the next five or ten years. Um, so, g- give us kind of the cliff notes of why you think India. Uh, is maybe a paper giant or, or isn't going to get there, isn't going to realize that full potential that it seems to have on paper? Well, I think there's a big macrostructural uh, point, which Danny Roderick um, has elucidated before. It's this uh, uh, article called, uh, he wrote, uh, called Premature Deindustrialization. You know, and, and he has noted that countries in the 21st century, like developing countries, were deindustrializing prematurely. And uh, this is something that has kind of happened in India, too. They seem to have skipped the manufacturing sector straight to services sector. They have competitive advantages in the services sector, you know, like English law, English language, blah, 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 all this awesome stuff. The problem with the service sector is that it doesn't employ as many people and it doesn't really give you the productivity gains that the manufacturing sector does for a number of different reasons. And so that's the first kind of a mega thing. India, you know... If India skips manufacturing, it's just not good enough for India, especially because it's such a large country with such a huge population. And then we go into a a more like, you know, we descend down the 30,000 foot view and then say like, okay, well, Modi is a really pro pro investment guy. He's he's pro business. He's done great things in Gujarat. And the markets have usually cheered his election and re-election and all that. But he still hasn't tackled after all this time that he's been in power. And recapitalizing through a really extraordinary re-election uh, campaign, he hasn't really tackled the twin ills of, you know, labor and land reform in India. And, I mean, he really has to do that uh, for productivity to increase and for investments to increase. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, India has uh, those kind of fundamental problems. And then the final problem is the, the investment. So investment in India will 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 be resolved like it will be it will it will get more investments if it if it has structural reforms in the labor and land front um but the problem is that you know there is a hesitancy by the sort of uh high net worth individuals and corporates and just basically generally the elites of india to invest in india and we have to kind of ask ourselves why that is the case I mean, the person in charge of India is probably the most pro-business person you can get at this point in India's development. So why is there still so much round-tripping through Mauritius? 
which seems to me like tax evasion more than investment. Why is there hesitancy? And I think the only way to kind of answer this um, is that, you know, the corporate and the um, high net worth elites in India uh, always have in the back of their mind this, you know, question of whether a country with so much mass poverty can truly uh, maintain a pro-business outlook on the long enough of a time horizon. Well, let me throw a challenge back at you and you tell me how, why I'm wrong. Um, so I, I agree with you that Modi hasn't gone all in on some of the reforms that he needs to, especially with um, labor and land reform, but he has tried some things. I mean, the the, demonetiz- the demonetization move was not popular, or I guess it didn't actually affect his popularity that much, but it was chaotic. It, it changed some things. Um, he's He's tackling agricultural reform right now, which in India is a huge deal with all those hundreds of millions of people who are still basically just subsisting on agriculture. And it seems to me that you could make an argument that the the median voter, if you will, in India um, is somebody who will support reforms and pain and sacrifices if it is in service of this new Hindu nationalist India, that maybe Modi is, it's not so much, I don't really care about Modi that much. I, I care about him as a symptom of this broader Hindu identity that seems to be congealing and which seems to be willing uh, to take some short-term hits if it means that India is going to get back to being a center of global power. Why am I wrong? No, I mean, I don't think you're wrong. I think just the price I have to pay uh, to wait for your idea to be articulated is really high. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's something I think, uh, I think you make a very cogent point um, that, you know, the median voter in India may be willing to take on some painful reforms because, you know, the promise is, well, you can catch up uh, to China. Uh, there's also a geopolitical sweet spot for India as well, where U.S., Japan, South Korea are all trying to kind of balance against China. Uh, the supply chain rewiring may benefit India as a result of that. Um, I just think that, you know, that kind of big picture stuff is already priced in. And India is one of the more expensive emerging markets. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that we now need, you know, more on the ground uh, reforms. And if you have all this political capital, look, you're not going to have more political capital if you're Modi later in your term. When you win an election, a re-election, and it's big, that's when you have the most political capital. And he kind of didn't, you know, use it. He wasted it on some like, you know, weird ethnic registration things. You know, he didn't really focus on the most painful reforms. Um, So I'm a little bit, you know, concerned about that. But look, Bottom line here is I've presented to you what I'm waiting for from India. And the great thing about having a, a kind of a constraint-based framework is that you identify those, you know, um, those things that you are waiting to turn, to change, to change your view. Uh, so if I see, you know, the government start uh, tackling the most critical reforms in a really robust way, then, hey, all bets are off. Go along. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think some of that ethnic registration stuff too was to was to buttress not just his popularity, but to make some facts on the ground so that the BJP is there in perpetuity. Um, mm. you know, the more the more he can hit Good on point. Kashmir, the more he can hit on Pakistan. Like he can just go to that well, and now they can go to China too with the conflict in the Himalayas. I feel like he can go back to that well just about any time he wants. You know, when he he was out there um, and saying when you know for Diwali when you're buying your lights, don't buy Chinese lights anymore. 
even though that meant that a lot of people were going to have lights or they were going to have really crappily made lights because China makes the best lights. I, I feel like that there's a well of, of stuff that he can go back there to. But I agree with I agree with you 100 percent that he has not he doesn't feel confident enough in his position to take on the big ones. He's kind of he's nibbling around the edges. He's he's bitten off a chunk of the reforms that need to start the process. But he he, he definitely doesn't seem to feel confident enough to go all in. Let's see. You know, there's some research in political science that tries to kind of quantify the nebulous concept of political capital. And basically, it's it's a pretty much like a well-known adage that the longer someone's in power, uh, the less political capital they have, the more focused they are on staying in power. And the second thing is the, the further you are from the election and from election victory, the less political capital you have. So both structurally and cyclically, you know, speaking. And so like if he hasn't done it by now, I'm starting to wonder when is this like labor and land reform going to happen? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. All right, let's go to U.S. China. Another one of the another one of the favorite things that I had in the book. You said that the the U.S. China trade war is overstated in the decade ahead. You think that they're too dependent on each other. Um, lay that one out for us. So, um, not so much dependent on each other, but just constrained. So, I think there's there's a couple of things going on here, Jacob. So, like, I want to start off, um, like, kind of 10 years ago. Um, I think the Cold War analogy is lazy mm-hmm. and overused, you know. And and I'll, I'll start off by saying, like, I was using it <laughs> in 2011, 2012. I was trying to capture the attention of the investment community by explaining that, you know, my view on the Middle East was relatively, like, positive. I did not think the Middle East is the most investment relevant um, risk out there. So, which was difficult kind of case to make in 2012, certainly 2014 when Islamic State is out there like capturing Mosul. To me, the South China Sea and the East China um, kind of risks were always the number one investment relevant um, thesis. So I myself used the Cold War analogy. I titled the piece in 2012, like Cold War 2.0, but it is a lazy analogy for a number of different reasons. So first we have to explain why. I think there's a lot of Johnny-come-latelys. They basically woke up in 2019 and were like, oh my God, China and the US don't like each other. We need to extrapolate what happened over the last two years into the future. And then boom, Cold War, Soviet Union, US, you know, here we are. Um, well, it doesn't work like that because Cold War uh, had a certain historical starting condition that we just don't have today. So the Cold War was a truly bipolar distribution of power. The Soviet Union and the United States were the only two countries in 1945 that could, like, run trains on time. Japan was dealing with, like, uh, you know, was cleaning up after two nuclear explosions on their territory. China was murdered in a, a civil war that would last another three years. You had Europe, which was completely destroyed with tens of millions of refugees going from one country to another. It was a complete mess. And then you had these other countries that were still colonies, like India of the United Kingdom. So the starting conditions in 1945 that produced the two camps, the two warring camps, the two the kind of the bifurcated the world into two economic spheres was massively different from today. Now, someone's going to say, well, like Japan and Europe are murdered in deflation. Like, OK, look, <laughs> agreed, you know, like uh, agreed. Like, I don't disagree with the kind of the, the joke that Europe is a museum. Like, sure. But they didn't have nuclear bombs dropped on them yesterday. You know, like it's much different. So today's world is not bipolar. And I want to start with that. China and the U.S. are clearly the two most powerful countries in the world. Clearly, the United States has like 11 aircraft carriers. Great. You know, we get it. 
but they're not in relative terms as dominant as Soviet Union and the U.S. were. And that's important because of the following theory. So in the 1990s, political scientists, for some reason, and I'm not quite sure why, they thought we were in a multipolar world. So in the 1990s, like when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was interesting that a number of political scientists they, in academia, they thought like, oh, it's a multipolar world now because Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, I think they didn't have like maybe the imagination or the confidence to say, no, this is a unipolar moment. America is now the hegemon. But for whatever reason, they started doing all this research on what does multipolarity mean for A, B, C, and D. And one of those things was trade. So there's some wonderful, wonderful political science research from the 1990s that, of course, nobody reads <laughs> that points out that a multipolar world does not produce a bifurcated economic system. In fact, it produces an incentive to continuously trade with your enemy, literally to the day that the war begins. Why? This is the beautiful and elegant part of this argument. In a bifurcated world between the Soviet Union and the U.S., the reason that you can cleanly separate the two economic zones into like two worlds is because the United States can pick up the phone and tell Turkey, Italy, South Korea, Japan, you're not going to trade with Soviet Union. And this persisted well into the 70s. I mean, it was only really with like German Ostpolitik and some of the commodity trading where like they built the pipeline infrastructure that uh, Russia uses to this day. But for the most part, you know, for the most part, these two zones were cleanly separate. Obviously, Soviet Union beat up everyone else over the head. Now, there were a few exceptions. I talk in the book about my homeland, Yugoslavia, that kind of like surfed on both waves. They were promiscuous geopolitically and economically. But for the most part, there was a clean distribution there was bifurcation. There was that, you know, curtain that was an iron curtain. It was very difficult to penetrate. A multipolar world order doesn't end up like that because United States of America and China do not have the relative power advantage over their own allies. So it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to compel France, Germany, or Italy to follow the same rules and norms over trade with China as they do. And as America realizes this, as policymakers in the United States, in the Beltway, realize that their counterparts are just not going to follow them, they face the prospect of losing market share in China and vice versa. Same with China. China faces the prospect of losing market share in the U.S. to you know, other competitors to also produce consumer goods and manufacture goods like Japan or South Korea or Thailand. And so you have an outcome that's very interesting. Geopolitical risks continue to mount. The pressure continues to grow. So I'm not saying China and the U.S. are on a course to become you know, uh, friends again. Clearly, there will be geopolitical tensions. They will continue, but trade actually continues. And there's empirical evidence of this. So in the 1930s, the U.S. and Japan continued to trade at roughly the same level for a decade, right up until Pearl Harbor. And Germany traded with UK, France, and Russia from 1871 when it was founded to 1914, the trade actually kept increasing. And not because Germany was good at diplomacy, but because the United Kingdom didn't trust the French and the Russians to maintain an economic blockade. And so they were compelled to grab market share with Germany. And I think this is exactly what's going to happen. And that's why I think there's geopolitical alpha to be made here, because I think too many people are overly bullish on both globalization and on China as an investment opportunity. Yeah, and I, I think people are also kind of, uh, there are so many parallels to me between pre-World War One Britain and what the United States is doing right now. I feel like, you know, 
everybody goes to Hitler and fascism and World War II when they start thinking about things, but there's actually a lot more insight to be mined, as you said, from from when the world used to be multipolar before, because it's it hasn't been really in the last kind of hundred years. You really do have to yeah. dig back and start thinking creatively to get there. Yeah, we don't have any experience as humans with a multipolar ordering. Like n- none of us were alive in trading and investing, and so the 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 obvious thing to do is to just go to a bipolar world and to apply the Cold War mental map. But actually, this late 19th century, early 20th century world was an incredible period of innovation, incredible period of trade and finance. And, you know, investors were these swashbuckling buccaneers, you know, going to the frontiers to figure out where the investment opportunities were. Geopolitics, politics, macroeconomics, and bottom-up analysis all coalesced together. That was the late 19th century. It was an exciting time, volatile time, but that's what a multipolar world looks like. It's not It's not ordered. It's not an equilibrium like a Cold War is. Well, you know, we shouldn't invest in China because they're going to be completely bifurcated from us. No, it's not going to be like that. Now, look, there's going to be some examples where, um, you know, there is cooperation amongst allies. So like on 5G technology, which is kind of an obvious one. And, you know, like Europe has an incentive uh, because they have Ericsson and Nokia. Like there's maybe an incentive to to use national security as a way to limit Huawei's access to, you know, the European market. I think on some technological issues, there will clearly be bifurcation. I'm not saying there isn't, there isn't going to be. But even that will be an investment opportunity. Like mm-hmm. I'm old enough to remember when a VHS tape like didn't work, you know, like on different Palsecum and NTSC, you know, there were different like, or I'm even old enough to remember like taking a cell phone to North America and not being able to use it. So there will be all sorts of innovation that will bridge these two technological gaps. But the point I'm making is that on big things, on, on commodity trading, on capital goods, there's not going to be a blockade. I mean, think about it. Imagine if the United States of America decided to uh, block off capital good, um, you know, trade with with China, and basically said like, look, you don't have access to Boeing airplanes anymore, <laughs> you know, and then and then some American diplomat went to Paris to tell the French like, hey, by the way, you know, like we just said no to trade, so you guys are obviously not going to sell them Airbuses, right? I mean, like, <laughs> what do you think is the response of France and Europe to this like ridiculous idea? They're going to be like, yeah, sure, buddy, yeah, we're not going to sell them you know, any Airbuses, we're going to sell them a lot of Airbuses. Come on, like it's not going to happen. So that's that's why there are limits. There's a geopolitical constraint. And that constraint is this theoretical idea that the distribution of power in the world kind of favors a continued economic relationship, even if geopolitics sours. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, Marco, we're, we're getting on and we need to get to the most important part of the podcast and and really the part of the book that made me doubt that you actually, like, I thought maybe that you had lost your mind because it <laughs> seems to me that you believe that the Yugoslav national team in 1992 would have defeated the dream team. And I've, I've been sitting here thinking about this and I think the only way it's possible is if Yugoslavia could somehow have traded for a butthurt Isaiah Thomas <laughs> and Isaiah Thomas... Nice like led you guys into battle, but I don't think that's even realistic. So why, why on earth do you think, I mean, I know they were good, but why, why do you think the Yugoslav team was going to beat the dream team? It, it, it has no basis in any empirical constraint, you know, medium point guard theory that I can think of. So here's what I would tell you. First of all, I think the exact quote was, I think I said would uh, give the dream team a run for its money. 
Yeah, it, it wouldn't be close. Come on. No, no, listen, listen, listen. <laughs> Here, here's what I would say to you. Chuck Daly would have called a timeout. That's for sure. In the first five minutes of that game, there will be a moment when Chuck Daly was like, okay, guys, like, you know, step it up. And that's yeah. – I'll, I'll, I'll be there. Uh, that's where I'm going to conclude this. The, the U.S. Dream Team would have called a timeout. But here's, here's a more interesting yeah, – obviously, I think uh, the, the 92 Dream Team is, is the, the greatest team. I agree. Michael Jordan, you know, you're not going to have an argument in that part. But here's what I think would have happened in, if Yugoslavia had not collapsed. I think it would have uh, retarded the expansion of uh, and development of global basketball. Mm. I truly do. I think the 1990s, uh, Croatia, uh, Serbia, Montenegro, Slovenia, they had such a wealth of incredible players, many of which, many of whom did not play in the NBA because of like biases and stereotypes, not because of skill levels. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think that, it, you know, like a lot of French, German and Spanish kids would have just said like, what's the point? And I don't think that they would have like actually played basketball. They would have gone and been volleyball players or something. But that team was so dominant that there is absolutely no chance that in the 90s or 2000s, any country in Europe would have done anything uh, other than get silver, bronze, and you know be distant second. It was that dominant of a team. And, and it's too bad no one's really like written about it or, or even um, made a good documentary other than uh, ESPN's 30 for 30 Once Brothers, which was, I think, really good. It was good, but it just scratched the surface, and it sounds like we have the topic for uh, for your second book, obviously. And I think this needs some serious investigation. Before I let you go, Marco, what's what's your hot take on basketball today? Uh, Cole Altam and Philip Orchard, who I think you both know, uh, make fun of me. They say I have the worst basketball takes in the history of of anybody that they've ever met. So I'm 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 curious to th- what's on your mind with the league. You think LeBron's going to repeat next year? Is something about the draft going your way? Like, wh- what are you thinking about right now? Uh, you know what's interesting? I mean, I think the player empowerment era. So I'll, I'll take a like a like an like a macroeconomic take. Okay, that'll be my hot take. I think the player empowerment era has gone too far. Ooh, okay, tell yeah. me more. Well, I mean, like you know, James Harden saying he wants to join the New Jersey Nets. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and then and then you know, saying like it's because like the owner of the Rockets is like a Trump voter or something ridiculous. I mean, look. I think, um, you know, I think there is a danger in too much player empowerment in terms of like moving between teams so wantonly and so quickly. And I mean, look, as a Laker fan, obviously uh, profited, AD came over. That's awesome. Uh, But I think I think there is I mean, look, if you look at um, survey data, you can see that uh, basketball still remains a distant like second, third in terms of U.S. sports. It hasn't actually moved. This is interesting, Jacob. I mean, you, you and I are both fanatics in basketball, but like, I was surprised to see that basically in terms of uh, responses of people who say that basketball is their number one sport, it's the same as it was like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the reasons for that is that, you know, it's difficult to kind of stay loyal to a team when, you know, players are just basically moving left, right, and center and creating like super teams that then dilute the quality and and I think the uh, the quality of the league, yeah, and competitiveness of the league. And I think the Golden State Warriors didn't help this uh, with their super team. I think if the Nets have it, they're not going to help. Um, I think that there's something that the league has to do to kind of rebalance that. And I think making better, uh, creating better incentives for players to stay with teams longer 
uh, by basically being offered more money to stay with the original team. I think something like that will have to be done. So that there's a balance between what players want, um, you know, being rewarded maybe with more money and what's healthy for the league. Yeah, if, if Harden does go to the Nets, I, I feel pretty strongly that I actually really want that to happen because not because it would be a super team, it would be a dumpster fire. Can you imagine Kyrie and Harden and Durant out there trying to get shot? Like, I just, I would like, get me some popcorn and get me in the front row and I just want to watch them tear each other apart there. Um, but yeah, I think to your point also, I mean, you and I both came of age uh, when basketball was still a team sport. Um and it's really not anymore. And it's it's true even, I mean, I, I haven't played pickup in six months, unfortunately. But even when you go play pickup these days, like, um, you know, it's just like the one dude who is the best guy on the team just takes the ball and shoots three-pointers from like, you know, five feet beyond the arc. And he's going to make 20% of them. And you just run and get his rebounds and run back and forth. And it's just not that much fun, you know? But, you know, there is a, there is a me- corrective mechanism for this because it's all like reflexive. And this is where I think the data analytics uh, revolution has also gone a little too far. Like, you know, saying that the three-pointer is the most efficient, you know, shot in basketball is true within the kind of data set that you're looking at. But it's, it's it goes back to this idea, you know, my favorite quote was when they asked Henry Ford, I mean, maybe this isn't a, a true uh, quote, but what, what would you have done if you had polled your consumers and your customers? And he said, well, they would have told me to build a better horse a faster horse. <laughs> and so what I'm getting at here is that there is going to be a corrective mechanism because if you suddenly have all these perimeter uh, shooters, you know, that just shoot threes and long rebounds and all that stuff, having mid-range game and post play, suddenly I think the price, the market price for that is going to increase because it's going to be unguarded. I, know, I don't know if you remember, the Spurs did this to Harden once where they chased him off the three-point line and then... Uh, forced him to take mid-range jumpers and he like didn't know what to do yeah and broke his brain it broke his brain like you know eight to like, like eight feet from the basket he was like oh what do i do so my my point what i'm getting at here is that i think there's a corrective mechanism and you'll see especially from europe I'll, i think you'll see more foreign players who do play team basketball here's my bias i, I didn't i didn't bathe in nihilism enough but <laughs> I think I think you'll see guys like Jokic. I mean, like a couple of times in in this playoffs, when when he was just like, "Wait, what am I doing?" and he lowered his shoulder, it was like game over. You know, um, he just bowled over these people, these fours and fives uh, that were trained to basically chase people off the three point line. So I think there's a corrective mechanism. Uh, Popovich, the coach of the Spurs, seems to have um, figured that out. I mean, if you look at the current team that the Spurs are fielding, uh, they have the two. Uh, players that shoot the most mid-range jumpers, um, and uh, and I think that he is betting on this kind of a market reversal. So that's interesting to me. Well, I love it. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna call it there because I just got the professional nihilist to confess to being optimistic about course correction towards something that he actually wants. So I, I think I'm gonna <laughs> take the victory there and say, Marco, thanks so much. You were very generous with your time, and hopefully we'll have you back soon. Okay. Anytime, Jacob. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, If you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners. So please don't be shy. Uh, You can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. 
Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there. Thank you.